Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, July the 13th, 2021. This is episode 2911. 2911 times now we've gotten together to do this show. Today I have for you Jason Brunson of Rebel Gardens. This is a guy who has a a company selling some gardening products and seeds, but he also has a mission. That mission is to get people growing food in their own backyard and specifically focusing on the people that can't quite, you know, just due to size limitations, time limitations, etc., go full-on homesteader. The average person, maybe like you, goes to work every day, comes home, doesn't have time for a flock of chickens and wants to be able to take a vacation and not have a chicken sitter, but also wants to produce some of their own food. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about, first of all, how the industrial food system became so dominant in our lives and in our world, and the biggest problem within it. We're also going to talk about how both corporations and governments are equally responsible for poor quality and limited choice in food today. I know it seems like you have unlimited choice in food, because you go into a supermarket and it's like, wow. Okay, but where's the food that doesn't have soy in it? Where's the food uh, that wasn't grown in a CAFO? And even when you eat organic food, a lot of times what you think you're getting is not what you're getting. We'll talk about today. There's actually a very limited choice in food today when it actually comes down to where your food comes from and how it's treated before you get your hands on it. We're going to talk about how a suburbanite, even with limited time and space, can start growing your own food and the best things to start out growing, and why food is the place to begin with your efforts to improve your world and the world as a whole at the same time. I'll have uh, Jason on in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. That fits well with today. We're going to talk a little bit about growing herbs, and I grow a lot of herbs. But I can't grow everything, and I can't find everything locally either. So when I need something, I know I can go to uh, Western Botanicals, and if it's herbal and legal in the United States, it'll be there. I know it'll either be organically grown or wild-sourced, and I know if I don't know what I need or I'm not sure about something or i got a question, I pick up the phone, I'll get an answer, and a real person who really cares about me will help me out with my needs. That's why I've been working with Western Botanicals now for over a decade. Check them out at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. Look, guys, everybody always wants to talk about you know guns drying up, guns drying up. Man, you can get a gun. I mean, people can only buy so many guns. I mean, I... I have kind of a gun addiction. I, I sure like to, to add something to my collection here and there. But there, there's, a, there's a lot more guns than there are people to buy them in general. You can get a gun. Two things that tend to dry up really quick whenever the gun grabbers start their crap, and that's magazines and ammo. And ammo's the one, man, you, unlike that, that dummy up there in uh, Colorado, that chick a few years ago, said once they shoot their magazines, they're not usable anymore. No, but ammo, unless you're a reloader, works that way. And even reloading components have been hard to come by lately. You need to stock up on ammo, because if you don't, what you have when you look at your gun without ammo is an overpriced club. That's really what you have. A gun without ammo can't do what a gun is meant to do. So stock up today. Learn more at BulkAmmo.com. Remember, they do a discount for members of the MSB as well. All right, with that, let's go ahead and jump headlong into this. 
I don't have any commentary for you today on our quote of the day, but I just want to read it to set the tone for the discussion that I'm about to have here with Jason. This is from Thomas Jefferson. This is what he said one time about gardening, and he said quite a bit about gardening. He even has an entire book you can, you can get of his old writings called The Garden Book. And in that book, he wrote, No occupation is so delightful to me as the culture of the earth, and no culture comparable to that of the garden. And uh, we had some audio gremlins in this episode. Nothing too bad that I wasn't able to edit out, but somehow, like, the first little bit of greeting, like me introducing Jason and him saying hello, got kind of knocked off. And we ended up to where all I've got is my first actual question, which is, you know, telling us about how he got involved with things. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and jump straight into the interview today. So what was it specifically then that got you, like, really interested in local food or what you call real food? Well, that all started back actually in high school. Um, I, I got into bodybuilding because I wanted to, to pick up girls, of course. That's why everyone gets into bodybuilding. And that led me to looking into healthy eating, which led me down quite the rabbit hole through, like, the Weston A. Price Foundation and Joe Salatin and just all that sort of stuff. And I got really interested in food. And so I went through a big stretch of buying local what I thought was good then, and I was buying from Whole Foods, and I was buying raw milk, and I was doing all that, um, and it stuck with me. It's been ebbs and flows. I blew out my back, so my my dreams of, of bodybuilding were gone, um, and then I had kids, and so then I got you know a dad bod and all that, but it's it's been this up and down, and the each up has gotten higher as I've realized it's not just about health. It's actually about society. It's not just about society. It's about politics, and it's not just about politics. It's about the environment. It's not just, and it's food. Real food um, has become this never-ending rabbit hole that seems to tie almost every problem in the world together. And that's sort of what's led me here. Well, that's very cool. I think a lot of people have very similar but different stories when it comes to changing the way they eat and deciding to grow and locally source food, but it always seems to come from a common root, is that I think the most common denominator in that is learning what you are eating now, right? I mean, that's what it seems like. Everybody that tells that story, no matter how it comes out, I thought I was eating good food, or like some people know they're not because they're living on Big Macs or whatever, and they do a full lifestyle change, but there's a lot of people that like, you know, I was eating a balanced diet, I was eating lots of vegetables, I was eating, you know, what I thought was good quality food, and then when they learn about the actual sourcing of their food, they're like, yeah, I, not so much, eh? <laughs> yeah, and that, that was mine, it was like, I'd go to Whole Foods and I would buy this overpriced something, and then, you know, two months later I'd realize, oh, that's just full of industrial oils and that that wasn't raised right and you go buy high priced organic meat and you're like oh that's just that's done in the same CAFOs as, as every other piece of meat they just have different corn prices it's yeah it's, have, a, it's a crazy rabbit hole yeah they, they, they stand in their shit and they eat expensive corn instead of cheap corn yep I mean that's that's organic beef it, unless it's grass fed and certified grass fed that's what it is it ate it, it, grain that was organically grown instead of, and is it better? It's, I try to phrase that as, well, it's less bad, but 
It doesn't really mean it's better. I, you know, better would indicate to me that the quality is good, right? And, and like, especially like beef's one thing. Um, chicken, organic chicken. I mean, it. You've done nothing. You've accomplished zero. It's the exact same chicken house of horrors that those things are raised in. They're just fed a different feedstock. That's that's literally, and they uh, might use a few medication, less medications. They might have to use. Uh, herbal oils instead of a certain uh, medication for them or something. But other than that, it's the same shit. Yeah, it really is. There's, you know, like I love your, your phrasing of less bad because that's exactly what it is. Like, sure, it's better than the worst alternative, but it's not good. The lesser of two evils is still inherently evil, you know. It's still evil. The, the, uh, the pattern recognition goes across everything. I think we need to not segregate patterns and understand that they, they go everywhere. And on that note, how do we get in this mess? Like, How did the industrial food, you know, mega giants become so powerful? And I, to me, I think that story goes back to the turn of the last century, right? Like into the 18 and 1900s to some degree. But it, even then, it seems like it was only so much because, like, I remember living with my grandparents as a young teen and having, like, a guy come to our house with a little, you know, we called him the farmer, And he would he would had eggs and milk and meat and stuff that were all from his farm and other farms and you know my grandmother and him had this retarded dance they would do where she'd say she wanted a ham this week and she'd say what half meaning the top or the bottom and she'd say the better half but I mean like we were buying product in the 80s directly from the producer who delivered it to our home in rural Pennsylvania and I guarantee you that's gone. That's not a thing anymore. Okay. And and so how did this happen? Was it like gradually then suddenly or like suddenly then gradually? I mean, how did this really happen? Well, I, it honestly goes back like you can you can trace this back to before America was founded. Um, but in America, it really was gradual until it wasn't. Um, in early America, right, virtually everybody was working on a farm or involved with agriculture and As the population grew fast, we needed more food. And so you had the government increasingly getting involved in trying to make sure there was enough food that was cheap enough for people to eat. And then that brought in industrial processes. And at the beginning, they were all great. Like, I have, I really don't have anything bad to say about, like, the Green Revolution and things. I think those were all wonderful for their time. Um, but as that went, you eventually hit right about the 1970s. That, that's That's where I kind of stick my pin as the the biggest tipping point. The world of go big. Quote. The world of go big or go home. Yes, that was going to be my quote from huh. Earl Butts. He was the the um, secretary of ag at the time, and that's his direct quote: "Get big or get out." And at that point, I just all went off the rails. Um, I mean, everything from our farm bill to constant consolidation to the tax system. Um, I mean, Joe Salton has his great classic book: "Everything I Want to Do Is Illegal." And if you haven't looked at that book, pick it up and look at it. Um, what we have today was very purposely created um, to be cheap calories. And that's it. That's, that's, that's all our food system is based on. And it's been that way for a while, but it really was the 1970s when it just flipped. And it's just been downhill from there. Yeah, and it seems to me like it was done in a myriad of ways. There was a lot of laws and regulations, but I think the biggest way that it was done is under that model of get big or get out, the government said, we're telling you this, but we'll give you money, right? We'll give you all the money you need to do it, 
as long as you do it the way we tell you to do it. And then we'll subsidize you enough that maybe you won't make a lot of money, but you won't go bankrupt, right? And then, you know, this is where we end up 10, 15 years later with Farm Aid and Willie Nelson trying to save the small farms that didn't get big and didn't get out, right? They got crushed. And so if you want to get something done, passing laws is one way to do it, but saying, hey, here's this big freaking pile of money with great lending terms. That if you own a farm, you can just have it. But then we need you growing corn, soy, and wheat in rotation, and we need you working with our chemical ag partners because we know we'll get good yields with that. And then if you clear the way you know, down the road a little bit, once you get that process in place, like you get everybody on board with their farming you know, 5,000 acres instead of 200, and they're using all this heavy equipment, and they're buying from Monsanto, and they're, they're spraying all these chemicals, and then you just clear the way for GMOs at that point. You do not have to be Nostradamus to know that most of the farms are going to use genetically modified grains because you've already cleared the way for their supply. You've already created the, the unholy alliance between ChemAg and Farmer, and then you just let more things go through ChemAg. Oh yeah, I mean the whole thing has been has been a one-two punch. On the one hand, exactly what you said, you subsidize what you want, and what you want is increasingly mechanized, larger farms that can pump out more calories at a cheaper price. But then on the other hand, you slowly ratchet up regulations against the things that you don't want, which is you know smaller uh, producers, craft food, um, alternatives to the industrial system that could reduce demand for that supply. And uh, you do that for a few decades, and, well, you have what you have now, uh, an environmentally destructive, health-destroying, animal-abusing mess. And don't you think, like, when I was talking about, like, gradually, then suddenly, that's kind of like that model, and, it, like, it's more like a slinky, like, gradually, then suddenly, then gradually, then, like, a pumping back, you know, we, we go fast, and then we go slow for a while, and then we go fast, and then we go slow for a while, like that slinky coming down the steps. And, like, what you said, that second part, where they made a lot of things illegal or impossible You build the megalith first, and so you, you start with sugar, and then the flies that don't come with the sugar, you hit them with the swatter, right? That, that, so, like, yep. that, that second wave of let's make it hard for people to do otherwise, the ones that didn't get starved out, the ones that didn't need Willie Nelson's farm aid, we're going to get them. And the ones that start saying, hey, I'm not already stuck in this system. I'm on the outside. I want to go into it, and I want to start up a local farm or what have you. And so they're not coming into it already saddled with debt, saddled with preconceptions. Because a lot of our farmers, they evolved with ChemAg. Like ChemAg was their source of information. They trusted them. Because when the nice man from the seed company came out and said, if you do this, you'll have a shitload of soybeans this year, at first it worked. So they gained the family's trust, and then the families became, like, hooked So you had the holdouts, and then you had the new generation of, like, gentlemen farmers that wanted to get into it, and we just couldn't have that. And, and that's where, like, you know, all of a sudden we're restricting what breed of pig a person can have as though, because, oh, we have a feral hog problem. We had a feral hog problem in the 1960s. Pink pigs go feral. Like, it's just, it, it's nonsensical. You had a, do you remember, I guess about eight years ago now, I guess, somewhere in that range where there was a judge in either Minnesota or Michigan or somewhere up there, that flat out issued a ruling that people did not, and it was over raw milk, people did not have a right to decide what did and did not go into their bodies. That was a ruling oh. from his bench. And then he 
walked away from his judgeship and took a job as a lobbyist for fucking Monsanto. Sorry for the F word there, but like that's one of those situations where like, wow. like I remember that ruling. I, I did not hear that he had uh, then just so blatantly Yeah, it was like within weeks. Work. Within weeks he quit and he went to work for Monsanto as a lobbyist. That's insane. I mean, that's, I mean, but that's a that's a little microcosm of the of the biggest problem. I mean, it's when you have corporations and government just working together, and there's no like the people's voice don't matter anymore, and it's just it's going to keep breaking. Is that what you think the biggest problem in uh, industrial food is? Is kind of the neo, what I call neo fascist nature uh, of modern society? Absolutely. I mean, it's you can't disentangle like. You know, there's a whole left-right divide. Like, who's at fault? The left thinks it's corporations. The right thinks it's big government. But at the end of the day, at least with food, you can't disentangle that. I mean, they, they've both had a hand in it. They've both been involved. The government is, you know, using regulations and subsidies on the one hand, and corporations are making sure those keep coming on the other hand. And, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a total... Neo-fascism is a perfect term for it. Did you ever see that there's a there's a meme and it's a dude sitting next to his girlfriend on the couch and she's like snuggled up to him and it looks like he has his arm around her. <laughs> but his hand is actually behind the couch and her like her girlfriend is sitting to her, you know, right and and the the her girlfriend and her boyfriend are holding hands behind her back behind the couch. And it's like Democrats, Republican and the girl in the middle is you. I, I think more accurately, it's like corporations and government, and you're the girl in the middle that, that yep. thinks you've got one of them as a boyfriend, but they're 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 playing grab ass behind the behind the scenes, and that is. Pro I think it's you know it's the biggest. I agree with you. It's the biggest problem in the industrial food system. I think it's the biggest problem in every system that we have. I don't think it like you said you know especially or at least food. I don't think it's at least anything. I think it's. Literally every major sector, healthcare, communications, media, um, fabrication, manufacturing, food, you name it, it's that way everywhere. There's literally, like, you can draw Venn diagrams of CEOs that go work for government and go back to work for their companies and then go lobby and then go back to work for government and go back. Like, it's like a revolving door. And I... I think it's maybe it's not at least in food. It's probably it's the I think it's the worst in food. I think it's worse in food than anywhere else, and I think it makes sense because it's the one thing no one abstains from. No one abstains from food. Like there are people like me. I, the last time I went to the doctor, I was in my twenties, and I'm almost fifty. Like I abstain from the pharmaceutical solutions. I don't get involved with them. There may come a day when I have something where I need something from that world, but until I do, I'm just out. And I and you can opt out of that. No one can opt out of food and water, right? Like those two things, and that's why I think there's so much, you know, there's so abundance of water and so easy acquiring water that there's only so much there. But food, man, like if you want something that you can put the thumb on every human being on the planet with. I don't know what is more true than you can do it with the food system. And that that is, I think, exactly right. If you look, it's like food, it's energy, to a certain extent, it's land. And that's like you own people at that point. If you control that, what, like you said, we can opt out of virtually everything. I mean, I could sew my own pants if I absolutely had to. Um, <laughs> but you can't opt out of those three things. No, you can't. And so you kind of mentioned the, the 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 
the cooperation, or I should say the unholy alliance between government and corporations is our biggest problem. Is one more at, at fault than the other, or is there one that we should be pushing on harder for solutions, or do we just need to build our own systems and set the hell with the whole thing because there's no redemption? I mean, is there any is there any way to leverage anything within that to actually do anything positive? Is it worth it? So I I used to think so. Um, I used to think that like I was really into food activism, and I was like, all we got to do is just you know get people to listen because this is so obviously dumb. And so obviously broken that if you can just get the right people to listen, they're going to fix it. Um, but I have, I've grown out of that um, after years of thinking that was a solution. No, I, I don't think that there is a, let's just say, straightforward path. Like, I don't think we can petition uh, the government to fix their subsidy and regulatory problems. I don't think most corporations are going to be like, yeah, sure, we're going to we're going to recapitalize billions of dollars of infrastructure because you want something different like That's that isn't a great path forward. Like kudos to the people still fighting that battle because we need people fighting that battle. Um, but that's that is not where we're going to win, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. So, you know, how can a sur suburbanite deal with the plague of industrial food? Right. Like how, how, how is how do you address that? Because, I mean, it's easy for me to tell people grow some of your own food. You can do it anywhere. And it's also real easy for people to tell me, listen, jackass, I don't have three acres like you and a flock of ducks and 15 aquaponic systems and multiple ponds. And, you know, I don't sit around all day farting around with this stuff as part of my living either. Like, I got a job to go to. So how does the average everyday person, you know, with a suburban lot uh, start to address this for themselves? So that's that's what um, we're working on at Rebel Gardens um, because it's exactly what you said. Like there there's good solutions if you want to go buy a few acres of land and homestead. Um, but if you like if you're like me and you grew up in apartment complexes or like I am now kind of living in the middle of suburbia, um, it's hard. Like you like half the time it's illegal to grow food in your your lawn. Like it's it's insane. Um, so that's what we're working to fix. Um, and right now, kind of the 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 Rebel Gardens plan, if you will is we just encourage people to start where they are and with what they have, right? Like my, my, my evil plot at Rebel Gardens is I want to destroy the bagged salad market. Um, this is one of the most <laughs> contaminated foods you can buy, and it, there's no nutrients in it at all, even though greens should be one of the healthier things you can eat. Um, and they're a piece of cake to grow. So if people start with the simple act of growing stuff that's easy, right, greens, herbs, basic stuff you can grow on a, on a counter if you got a few hours of sun through a window. Um, you can save good money. Like There's been studies done that point to upwards of over $600 that people can save every year just by really basic, not crazy farming, just basic growing food at home. And then you take that money you're saving and you use that to buy from better producers. Right, This is the people who are raising cows regeneratively. Uh, these are the farmers that are not just decimating the soil and abusing you know, immigrant labor to bring you your artichokes. Um, you support your local farmers who are doing things right. And that one-two punch, it starts the ball moving on change. Because we're never going to fix government or corporations unless we have a viable alternative. Right, The moment we have a groundswell of people who are supporting an alternative that actually works and is actually scalable, then we have a door. And once you have that door, 
these other forces have to respond. Now, they could respond by trying to shut that door on you. Like, that's the typical thing. Um, you mentioned raw milk earlier. I mean, that's been the... They've outlawed it. They've jackboot thugged, broken into tiny little Amish farms yeah. to sell it. It's insane. Um, but if this is a decentralized process and we're following the law and we're being public about it, it can grow fast enough that that's, a, that's not a great option for them. And so then we have an alternative. Then we have something we can switch to. It's not stop growing industrial food and we all starve. It's, okay, we have this alternative. You need to meet this standard now. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I, I've seen directly the impact of things like buying from local producers who are doing things right. I've got a guy not far from me. I don't buy meat from him much anymore because with ButcherBox kind of stepping in, I've really got some full freezers, a few deer a year and a few feral hogs and, you know, some ducks and pasture chickens and our meat's pretty squared away. But when I started buying from him, he was the only person anywhere close that was, and he's not really a regenerative, holistic grazing guy. He's doing a pretty decent job of rotational grazing. It's okay. But he is grass feeding and he's grass finishing. And, you know, when I was buying from him, All I had to do was tell him, I'll buy a half beef. I ain't got room for a hole. And you find me some. And he's like, I'll find you somebody. So he starts selling all his all his cows. No problem. Every one of them. And what happened after that was he, you know, it turns out people that raise cows tend to know other people that raise cows. That's how that works. They kind of just like, you know, two guys that play with model airplanes hang out, two guys that raise cows hang out. And one of his buddies was telling him how, he wasn't happy with the money he was getting, basically taking all his cattle at finishing time off the sale barn and let him go to CAFO, and he wasn't getting the money he wanted for him. But at least he could sell them all. And this dude Odom tells him, well, hell, I sell all my cows, and I sell them for a hell of a lot more than that. All I do is hold on to them for a couple more months. And it doesn't cost me much to hold on to them because they eat grass like they're supposed to. And I think that's one of the things people don't realize about the whole grass-fed beef thing. 99% of every cow's diet in the United States is grass. It's either grass or hay most of the time. It's finishing where they go stuff. Because what the hell farmer, what the hell rancher's going to go buy huge sacks of grain if they don't need it? They shove them full of that grain at the end. Now, I've seen some pretty nasty practices, too. I saw one place where they were feeding them like old candy bars and stuff. So that, that does happen. But mostly cattle are grass-fed, and then they go to a CAFO to be finished. And all that, all that rancher has to realize is they have a market and a way to move that product for more money, and they're going to do it. Because I don't know how many farmers you know, but all the ones I know are in business, and they like money. <laughs> right? They like money. So the only reason oh, yeah. they go with the CAFO model of like selling it off at the, you know, in, in, in a, just a price per head is they know they can get the money, and there's a, there's a bottleneck at the end. In selling to me, right? Like, they can't really, there's no legal system where they can sell me, like, five ribeyes and four T-bones and half a liver and, <laughs> you know, like, they can't do that because they have to use FDA approval or whatever and, you know, they don't, then they'd have to stock it. But when they can sell me a half or a whole beef, what we do is they take it to the slaughterhouse and I sign for it. And I'm not, I, they're not selling me beef. They sold me the cow. And then the processing was done for me. But then you got to create this kind of coalition of people because a lot, like most people, if you 
if you get a half beef from a, a, a well-finished, you know, cow, you're surprised at how much space that takes up. So then you have to create kind of this ability for customers to each take a quarter or a half. And once you do that, everything opens up. So he got two of his buddies onto doing this this way because they were unhappy with the money they were getting. And he was so comfortable that he's like, well, I'm not going to run more head. I sell everything already. They're not competition. But if people like me weren't buying from him to begin with, then none of that happens, right? Well, that's right. And we're seeing that sort of grassroots building of these institutions we need. We have a family friend, and she just, I don't know, probably two or three years ago at this point, but not too long ago, started a business where she's kind of become this quasi-middleman for um, a lot of the local producers of different um, food goods. Um, like we get we get our half cow through her, typically. And so rather than the farmers having to go to farmer's markets and try to learn marketing and do all this stuff, they go to her, and she just gets a tiny, tiny sliver because she's kind of working on volume, and they have a ready-made market that they know they can sell a huge percentage of their stuff to, whether that's beef, whether that's vegetables, whether that's a CSA, whatever. And uh, we're, we're seeing these things pop up. Like even like the Weston A. Price Foundation I mentioned, they have local chapters that are just building networks of people who want this food, um, and it's building this grassroots network, this grassroots foundation for an entirely new food system um, that we're going to need soon. Where, where are you located? Like, um, I'm just outside of uh, Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. I was about to say, but I know who that is you're doing that with, but nope. <laughs> If you told me somewhere like Tennessee, Kentucky, I was going to say, that's Nathan Bailey you're probably working with, but that's that, that's really cool. Because um, that's just examples of like, you say a person running a business model, I think of somebody, and it sure as hell ain't them. That just means that this is happening, like you say, grassroots all over the place, and everybody's coming up with a model that works. And I think that's that's their behemoth nature is our advantage. So the person doing what you just described in Oregon probably has to take a little bit different stance on their status jiu-jitsu than the person doing it in Tennessee or Texas or Florida. Mm -hmm. And we can do that, and they can't. They have to be homogenized. That's their whole business model is homogenization. You know, The reason Budweiser sells so many beers, even though it's garbage, is when I buy a Budweiser, it tastes like a Budweiser. If it was made at the brewery in Jacksonville, Florida, Fort Worth, Texas, or St. Louis, Missouri, it's the same product. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're trying to do is basically create an equivalent product in a world where you can't, by the way. I can make beer taste the same with enough quality control. You can't make a piece of beef taste the same as another piece of beef. Every cow's an individual. You can make it all taste like shit, though, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the best thing to get started growing is? You mentioned greens. I, I think that's a fantastic one because my opinion of it is it's extremely expensive. We've been talking about meat here for a while, but if you go look at the bag salad mixes you were talking about, if it's not full of iceberg lettuce, if at least it's made an attempt at being like a good greens mix or something – You buy the pound, you can go buy ground beef or maybe even low-end steak for for less than people pay for greens. Oh, yeah, especially by the calorie. Oh, the uh, calorie's not even close, right? I mean, <laughs> No, I mean, there's, there's two things that I think everyone can and should grow. So greens is the first one. I've already mentioned that. I mean, that's... Um, Yeah, that's the only thing I've ever been able to grow consistently from day one when I kind of got into gardening. It's it's easy to grow. Everyone can do it. 
Um, and you can do it indoors. Herbs is the other one. Um, that one's a little harder to grow, but um, the ROI on herbs is is insane. That's by far. Oh, it's stupid. <laughs> and and your herbs at your store, I mean, unless you're buying the really expensive ones, they've been they've been ran through radiation. They've been yeah. sterilized. They're probably like two years old. It's it's garbage anyways, and it's expensive garbage. So grow it yourself. Um, and then the third thing that I always tell people is just grow whatever you use. Um, it doesn't need to have a big ROI. Like if you love tomatoes, grow tomatoes. If you love garlic, like my family does, we'll, we're trying to grow. We're trying to learn how to grow garlic. Um, my my daughters love strawberries, so they have their own strawberry gardens going. Um, just do whatever you love. Um, greens you can grow year round. Herbs you can grow year round, and then you know put together a little garden. And whether it's one grow bag or five acres of whatever you want to eat. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big. Uh big fan of both the herbs and the greens uh i use fresh herbs in my cooking like all the time i have entire beds you know because i have enough space that are dedicated to like i have one bed that's pretty much grows sage i have a bed that grows lemon balm i have a bed that grows when i say bed these are like four by four you know the container gardens uh but i have a bed that grows uh bee balm I have a bed that grows peppermint. I have a bed that grows oregano. And like these, when I say that, they have other things in there, but that's like, it's the oregano bed, right? It's, it's the, it's the lemon balm bed. And there might be some yeah. chives growing in there or something like that. And the elevation that gives to your food. And you say it's a little harder. Maybe it is an organ. I don't know. It's, it, to me, most of these herbs, especially kind of Mediterranean herbs, you know, being in central Texas, that's the easiest thing I can grow. Even if they look like crap in the summer, they survive, and then you prune them down, and in the fall they explode again. You know, yeah. like so. I mean, and then you, they're easy to preserve. Like so, the one weakness on the greens is it's either fresh or it's crap. You know, yeah. or it's compost. But you know, herbs I prefer fresh to dried in all things except rosemary. I think rosemary is actually a better dried herb than a fresh herb. But dried herbs are are good. There's nothing wrong with them, and it's as easy as you take this bundle of sage, you tie a string around it, and hang it from a tree in the sun. Yep. I mean, that's it. I, you know, well, what do you do? Like, do you put it in the dehydrator? No, just hang it up. It'll dry out. When it dries out, you put it in a jar. And the difference is, since you're growing it, you're probably using that dried version of it a couple, three months a year. And by the time spring comes back, you have a fresh, you have fresh herbs again. And a lot of these herbs will perennialize even in, you know, like zone six, cold climates. Uh, it, at least they'll come back from the ground. And a lot of times they'll make it through that first frost. They don't really go away till it freezes. So, like, you know, I'm always using fresh sage from my sage bed on my Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. And, 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 and like you, the, you said, the ROI, it, it's bigger than you think, too, because the reason you use so little herbs is because, number one, the ones from the store suck. And number two, they're so expensive. But when you mm -hmm. have an unlimited supply, you know, I mean, I, I pruned back so much sage today that I composted half of it. I mean, oh, wow. you know, I mean, like, it's like, it's Texas, dude. Sage is not impressive. Don't, don't, that's like saying you grew kudzu in Georgia. I mean, it's just, but, like, the fact that you can do that. And it, so, like, there's something, I guarantee you, that I want to grow. It's like hard to grow here, and in Oregon, it's like it's on, baby. Let's go! Like it's just gonna like it rains where you are, you know. Oh yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff you can grow that, that, and so find what what you love. I like that. Find what you love, but also out of what you love, what does well. Yeah. Like and look what people grow commercially, and I don't mean corn, 
rye, barley. I mean, like, when you find market gardeners, what do they grow the most of the easiest? Because that's what does well in your area. Like, grow what you grow what loves to be where you are. Like, I remember I had Mark Shepard on years ago, and he's like, you know, Steph Holzer can grow all the lemons he wants in the Alps, but I'm going to grow plums and chestnuts because that's what grows where my farm is in the frigid winters of, uh, of, of Wisconsin. I'm not going to try to grow a lemon or an orange because it's a publicity stunt. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's perfect advice, right? Grow what you love, grow what grows in your area so you're not, so you don't end up with a $50 tomato. You want to actually <laughs> save money if possible here. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that, we're talking about it, and, you know, for, for your average suburbanite, we're making it sound easy. It's not. Like, I still have stuff that dies. Like, my garden. Well, I kill shit all the time. <laughs> it happens. Like, my garden is the worst garden possible. It's facing the wrong direction. It's shaded for over half the day. Like, but I, I've been, but you learn, right? I can grow greens like crazy. I can grow snap peas and a few other uh, legumes like crazy. Strawberries seem to do well for whatever reason. And you learn what grows, and you learn what you can do, and you use it. I mean, that's it doesn't have to be complicated. Like, just experiment. Have fun with it. Your first harvest, probably going to suck, but that's okay. Your third, fourth harvest, yeah, all of a sudden, you're going to be like, I wonder if my neighbors want any of this zucchini, because, you know, that's how it works. Yeah, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, if you didn't close your damn car windows in August... You came back from the store and there's a bag of zucchini in the back seat. And that's that's not just a story. That shit really happened all the time because um, it just grew like that. It was before the the mass invasion of the squash vine borer, though. Um, what do you? Why do you think that food is such as an important place for people to focus? There's a lot of places that we can go when it comes to making our lives better, having more freedom and more control of them. But food is really an important one. What what makes it so important to you, or, or such a keystone place to start? So I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but the reason that I've become so passionate about it is because, well, there's two reasons. So reason number one is it impacts everything. Like, are you passionate about the environment? Then you're passionate about food, right? Concerned about global warming? Food. Um, are you concerned about healthcare and the, the, the decline in health in our society? Well, you care about food. Um, economic issues? Food. Immigration issue? Food. Like, it is not always the number one, but it's in the top three for virtually every big category of problems that people are passionate about um, in this country. And it's not a right versus left thing. Like, the same you're going to do the same thing. Like you might prefer, you know, if you're on the left, you might prefer co-ops and, um, you know, whatever is trendy there. And if you're on the right, you might prefer, you know, entrepreneurially driven whatever is, and that's fine. Like, but you're both doing the same thing. You both have the same enemy, right? If you're on the left, fight against corporations. You're on the right, fight against government. But you're both doing the same thing. It cuts across the political divides. It impacts virtually every problem in our country. So that's the first one. The second one follows along from that in that it's, I like to say it's fractal, which is, which is my effort at sounding smart. Um, because you can do food. It, it starts by impacting you, right? If you start growing and buying better, you get healthier. You learn more. You get more resilient. And then that impacts your family. 
And then your family can start influencing your neighbors. And then your neighbors can start supporting one of these kind of grassroots institutions that start supporting the community. And it scales all the way up to, you know, global if you, if you pull it out. But there's never a point, like you're not just slamming your head into a wall and burning yourself out. You're actually improving your own life while you're working to support the greater good. Um, there are very few things like that. And this is one of them. And so for those two massive reasons, like everyone should be interested in food. Yeah, I think everyone, everyone eats. I think what you're saying there, and the second reason is because you can, right? I mean, that's that's a big reason I've always focused on, like growing your own food, buying local, all of that stuff, because you can, and it works really well when a few of your neighbors get on board and they start growing some other stuff, and you start bartering or you form a little co-op, and maybe you get like that middleman person that gets the things you can't grow. All that works, and it can scale up. But if you can't find anybody that wants to participate at all around you because you're surrounded by people that are, I don't know, they drank too much fluoride water or something, and, and it's working, and they've, they've self-lobotomized with it, you still can do it. Nothing stops you from saying, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go out and I'm going to line out and figure out where to plant my first garden. Or I'm going to set up you know, an indoor system running you know, basic hydroponics and grow greens and herbs. Zero barrier to entry you can't to me i don't even think a person can cop out and say but i don't have the money because you can drive around i don't know about now but a few years ago anyway before lumber became higher priced than diamonds you drive around to old construction sites pick up some scrap lumber and throw a couple raised beds together and go find some dirt somewhere and put a tarp in the trunk of your car and bring it home if you had to like there there was nothing that really prevented anybody sufficiently motivated You know, and a lot of yards, if they're not like mine with a rock bed base, you could just dig a hole. You don't need a you don't need a raised bed or whatever. Like the, no matter what it was, you could do it. Whereas, like when people say, "Well, I'm more concerned about the environment. I'm going to put solar on my roof," and we can talk about the long tail pipe theory and what does it take to make that that solar panel or whatever. But you know, to to have any meaningful impact, you're talking thousands, really tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. But Ten, fifteen bucks in seeds and borrowing a shovel from a neighbor and some sweat equity for a weekend or two, and and you can grow food. Yeah, and that not only is it readily accessible, but you're doing something good, right? Like if you want to save the whales, like which is fantastic, <laughs> but if you invest your life in saving the whales, you're not doing anything for yourself. Like maybe you save the whales, maybe you don't. Where if you're fighting for food, if you're growing your own food, you're supporting your farmers, you're talking to your neighbors, at the end of the day, worst case scenario, uh, you're healthier and more resilient. Like that's it. Like there's no, there's zero downside to getting involved. Yeah, and I think like big goals like that, I'm gonna save the wells, I'm gonna get rid of nukes, whatever. Like those are laudable, and I, I'm all for having something in your life that's bigger than than you're even capable of because it makes you stretch. Like you jump higher if the hurdle's higher. But in the end, if, if that's what your whole world ends up being about, I, I suggest you wait till you know February down here. And I don't know where where you are, but when the winds really kick in, you got about you know 40 mile hour sustained everyday winds, and go piss into the wind in that because that's what you're doing. You're not going to, you're not going to change that at that level with 
no matter how much energy you put into it. You might be able to make a difference, but it won't be because you spend every day of your waking life thinking about it and working on it. It'll be because of some little thing, some little piece that you could have done anyway and saw to other things like, I don't know, your health, taking care of your family, taking care of your neighborhood. And I think the person that that grows a really kick-ass garden in the middle of suburbia and hands you know fresh things like peppers and tomatoes over the fence to kids and lets kids taste real food will make way more difference than a person bobbing around in a boat for Greenpeace. I really uh, do. And I don't, dis I don't have any lack of respect for that person because that's scary as shit and you can die and you got to really believe in what you're doing. It doesn't mean it's effective. Right? It doesn't mean it's effective. When they start spraying your ass down with ice water and there's no recourse, because that's what they do. I've seen it on TV. You know, that they were up, they were protesting some um, rig up in the middle of like the North Arctic Sea. And it's in the middle of nowhere. And all they did was put a pump down in the ice cold water and start spraying them with it. And eventually they went home. Because you can only do that for so long. Um, I just feel that person might have done better growing some peppers and tomatoes. They might have made a bigger impact. Probably would have. And they probably would have. And the other thing with, you know, since we're talking about grand ideas, there's, there's a certain amount of, of hubris involved. Like, you don't actually know if you're doing good, right? Like, if you yes. stop that rig out there or the people who have fought against oil pipelines or whatever, even if you're victorious in that, you actually may have made everything worse. You don't actually know with a huge yeah. you know, interconnected, interdependent system that this one thing that you're dedicating your life to stopping is actually going to be a net good. Maybe um, they, maybe you do succeed. You shut down that one oil platform, and they go somewhere else that's harder for you to get to, and they, they have to build five. Yeah, or you, know, you, you don't know. pipeline, and they start trucking it, and we you know leakage is way yeah. higher with that. So you yeah. actually made more damage to the environment. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, where, like you said, if you just go plant some food and share that with your neighbors and tell them why you're planting that food, right? We like to call it, at Rebel Gardens, we like to call it propaganda gardens um, <laughs> rather than, like, victory gardens, right? Because yeah. it is. You're doing it for yourself, but then at the same time, if you can influence some people, well, all of a sudden, right, that starts scaling. That starts making a real impact that's going to help those people, whether the whole system changes or not. Yeah, you still made a difference. Even if you didn't change, if you didn't change the world, Across the street, if you didn't even get that far, you still changed it in your backyard. You yep. have control over it, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, same thing when I hear people that get on to me because I'm not completely on board with the whole climate change, you know, religion is what I call it. And I'll always ask them, how many trees have you planted in your life? And usually it's not a very good answer. Occasionally you get somebody who puts their money where their mouth is, and it is. But most of the time, you know, these are people that want us to have a higher tax, and somehow that's going to fix the planet. Um, if we tax carbon, carbon will go away. Because, you know, when we tax things, they go away, like, you know, alcohol and cigarettes. and yep. <laughs> It's just an asinine suggestion that it will go away because you taxed it. It will give more power to government. But, you know, I've probably planted... It, with my own hands, thousands of trees, and I've probably encouraged millions to be planted over the years I've been doing this. And to me, that's more important than a tax. Like, that's a thing that you can do. Uh, Paul Wheaton will tell that person, you know, and he's a little bit more of an adherent to the theory than I am. But he'll say, like, have, have you built a hoogle mount? Because you know that's directly putting carbon into soil, right? Like, it's literally taking carbon and putting it in soil. You haven't built one yet? Well, go do that, and then we'll talk about this again. You know? And um, I just think that there's so much that we can do 
that it really doesn't make a lot of sense for us to, to wring our hands and gnash our teeth over what we can't do until we've done all that we can. When we've run out of d things to do that we can do, then we can worry about the things that we need to get somebody else to do, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes total sense. And that's, and that's the same thing I tell people because people are like, well, I want to, you know, we need regulations and we need the Green New Deal. And I'm like, okay, let's start with this. Go buy regenerative meat, right? Stop going to McDonald's. Stop shopping for your meat at Safeway. Buy regenerative meat. If you can do it locally, great. If you can't, order it. I'll start there because that's going to do, that's like, what is agriculture? Supposedly it's like a third of the greenhouse gases. And if it went all regenerative, it would be a lot less, potentially even a negative. Um, you're going to do 10x more supporting that than supporting some tax that, again, it's such a big, complex system, that could do more harm than good. You know, I've actually had that very conversation face-to-face -face with kind of like, you know, mid-level millennials, like mid-20 millennials, and mm -hmm. they'll say something like, oh, I would, but I can't afford it. Well, I'm not sure how that's going to work out for you then if we could make everybody have to afford it. However, I'm wondering if you could get rid of that Starbucks latte, buy yourself a French press, and buy enough regenerative meat or whatever it is to, to do one meal a week with it. And then they look at you really angry and eat their avocado toast. Right? <laughs> like, you know, it's like you're eating avocado toast from Starbucks. Like, I didn't even know Starbucks had avocado toast, but now that I see you eating it and I know you paid like five bucks for a piece of toast with avocado slathered on it, I get why they would. You do understand you could have went and bought ethically sourced avocados from even a mass producer like Costco and made your own avocado toast and went down the road and bought your beef from, you know, your version of Joel Salatin near you, right? The, we all, I know there's no Joel Salatin everywhere, but <laughs> there's somebody following that plan. We had... You know, we had a, a farmer's market in Arkansas when we lived there for a couple of years, and we met this couple, and they had modeled everything they were doing on Salatin, mostly with pork and, and poultry. But their actual big money crop was rabbits. Huh. That's what they made the most money on because they had worked out, you know, a kind of a la Nick Ferguson, how to raise all the feed for the rabbits. So they had, like, they fed a little bit of pellets as like a stopgap, But they had relatively a zero input cost on the rabbits. But the only reason they did the farmer's markets was to sell the chickens so they could tell every single person that bought a chicken, we sell rabbits, but we can't bring them here. You have to come to our farm to get them because of regulations or whatever. Of course. And, but they built their entire rabbit business on chickens. And see, that was a person that looked at what Joel was doing and said, well, you know, Joel lives in Virginia. A lot of shit he says works and a lot of shit doesn't. If you build a chicken tractor like Joel Salentin does in Arkansas, you will cook your chickens <laughs> while they're young. I mean, you will flat kill them. Darby even says that where he's in Indiana. He'll kill them if he, if he uses a tractor like that. Um, so they, they adopted what worked, they threw out what didn't, and then they adjusted to it, and then they figured out a way, instead of saying, oh, there's no reason to do rabbits, we can't sell them at the farmer's market, they're like, what can we sell at the farmer's market to get people to come buy rabbits? And so there's just, that's why I think this is so important, because like, no matter what you give me, give me 10 minutes to think about it, and I'll come up with some way to at least start getting around it. Like, this is so universal, and so many people want you to win, if you want to go beyond producing for yourself, if you want to start producing for others, Like you have a, like millions of people that want you to win 
And I think alluding to what you were saying earlier, like it, it, it spans the political dichotomy. For every, you know, guy like me that's a gun-toting, you know, anarcho-minded, you know, capitalist, it's like, well, I want to buy your rabbits because they taste good. There's some hippie out there that's like, dude, I wish I could buy rabbits. Right? Like, it doesn't really, you know, there's the vegan that doesn't want that to happen. But on both sides of the political line, or overall, the apolitical line, everybody kind of understands this. And I think most people, even if they're not in touch with it, as soon as they become in touch with it, where, like where they learn, like, I really just can't buy food from you. Like, they, immediately, I think, like, we have this, like, this rebellion streak coming on, kind of like Rebel Gardens, I guess, right? Like, mm -hmm. where people then immediately, like, well, well, no, I want to now. You know what I mean? Like, like what? I can't do it? Oh, hell. And I think we need to, like, grab onto that, right? Like, we need to, like... Um, Xavier Hawk, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he his one of his lines is you know, uh, liberty is the new punk, and, <laughs> and I think like basically we're building the new counterculture is based on liberty and freedom, and that that would be a beautiful thing. I mean, and it really isn't the best part of that because you can take it way beyond food, of course, but it's it really is just what what does the kids call it the the, the smart college students, not the dropouts like me that they. Prefigurative politics, right? You start building the world that you want to have, right? Where do we want to go in you know, 50 years? Well, you just you do that now, and you figure out how to route around the damage until you have the capacity to fix it. And that, I mean, that's that's the only way to change the world. Trying to grab hold of the government, or you know, trying to you're going to go become CEO of McDonald's and change what they do. No, you're never going to do that. The incentive will not allow you to make that change. Like that's basic public choice theory. But if you build the alternative, well, now you got a shot. I know most of the stuff that you uh, you sell on your website and you, you you talk about on your website is generated toward kind of the gardening side of the things, uh, things we can grow. But we've talked a lot about meat and proteins. What do you think the best options for people? you know, producing something for themselves at home when it comes to protein production are? Well, that one, you know, that one I'll say for the experts like you, um, right? So I target, like, people in suburbia. Like, I I don't want to talk to the people who have 50 acres and, you know, know how to farm. They have their homestead. Like, those aren't my people. My people are people who live in apartments and, and suburban enclaves. And, you know, there's a huge thing with chickens, and I think if you were willing and able to do that, you should do that. Um I mean, if you're really on the down low, you could certainly do rabbits. Um, but I would rather actually, I'm pretty sure I stole this from you. Okay. Because um, I've started telling people you grow your nutrition and you buy your calories. Yeah, you stole that from me, but you can steal anything you want from me. Yeah. Fantastic. I appreciate that. Um, that was like the subject line of an email I sent because it's like, it is hard. Like, if you can do chickens, great. Like, there's eggs and there's, there's all those basic options. Um, but most people aren't going to, right? Even if they, like it like it's hard they're busy they don't have a big backyard chickens can be smelly and mean um but you can grow and that's why at rebel gardens that's kind of what we focus on because it's like everybody 100 of people can start an herb garden like there's zero percent of the population like i don't care if you're in a 600 foot apartment with no access to sun for like 50 bucks you can have an herb garden going 
And so that's that's really what I focus on. And if people want to level up from there and bring on animals and proteins, like I'm going to point them to you. I'm going to point them to a few other people and say, like, go learn from those guys. You know, I think there's some wisdom in that because as much as I'm a proponent of it, and you know, we our main protein that we produce ourselves, it's really split between ducks and fish. Um, I'm not going to say it's easy. I don't mean that it's hard to do. I'm saying that it it complicates your life. If you have a suburban home and a garden in the backyard, you can put a timer on a sprinkler and you can find somebody online or in the neighborhood to come let your dog out two or three times a day and you can go on vacation for two weeks. And you know what happens? Absolutely nothing. You have to mow the grass when you come back. Maybe pull a few extra weeds. When you have a flock of ducks and fish that live because of pump runs and You know, if you're doing rabbits or like we used to do quail, I think the the ROI is tremendous from from a caloric and from a nutrient density standpoint too, especially if you're utilizing things like organ meats and all. However, you know, I have to pay somebody to basically live at my house for two weeks to take a two week vacation, and that certainly offsets any financial gain we get from it. I'm okay with that. I'm willing to make that exchange. But I think a lot of people that are thinking about producing their own food, you know, maybe you, you need to think about that before you go on out and get a flock of chickens or rabbit hutches or whatever. And I think the other place there is, like, if you can start to form that, like, local coalition of the willing, you know, there might be some little old retired guy that knows how to slap together cages and can raise rabbits and, and do that. And if you can get two or three families to go in on it, Basically, everybody can eat rabbit once a week for free. And so maybe that's a better way. So it's not really about what to grow, but should you? And then if it's you, then how do you leverage what you have to make it pay for itself? Like one of my best friends, it doesn't matter what it is. It's a hobby to him. It needs to pay for itself. Right? Like um, even like he's the one that got me in all the backyard ponds and stuff. And, you know, he sells a cup of koi every year. That pays for all the fish food. And, like, I think that's a model to start looking at, too. How can we use little pieces of commerce? And it doesn't always have to be money. Like, if you're really good at growing greens and you got a neighbor that grows rabbits, not only does your neighbor eat greens, so do his rabbits. Right. And, and like, so there's always, like, ways to do that. Or, like you said, just take the money you save and invest it in better quality meat. But I, I dig that you stole my, my phrase. I forgot about that phrase. Grow your nutrition and buy your calories. That's that's kind of my advice, even with bigger homesteaders, when you start, right, start there. Because even if you buy chickens, you're at 20. If you buy baby chickens, so you're at 24 weeks before you. Um, you know, I love that idea that you were presenting. And there's an old book um, called Community Technology. I think the, the author is Carl Hess. And you know, the details of the book are outdated. I think it's from like the 1970s. But it kind of chronicles his efforts to um, create like a local food system in a Washington, D.C. I think it was a suburb, but it might have just been the city. And, you know, they started building like one person was able to build an aquaponics system in their basement and other people grew vegetables. And they started building this micro economy around food that made them resilient. And it was just this there's this whole possible network that once we look at what we have now and we go, okay, 90% of what I eat is corn. like, And it's corn covered in 
toxins and it's corn covered in this and it's genetically modified and it's just not, it's not adding to my health. We can build that network. Like there is so much there, right? The, the rebel gardens approach of like, Hey, grow some greens and herbs, maybe grow some tomatoes. Like, you know, Hey, do microgreens in the winter. Like that is just the starting point and it does not have to be a stopping point. I mean, we, you could, you could rebuild a food system in a small city, um, pretty reasonably and not have to have a ton of imports. It's, it's possible. It just takes people willing to do it. No, I completely agree with that. So, so tell us a little bit more here about Rebel Gardens. We've, we've talked about the general subject quite a bit at this point, but what exactly is Rebel Gardens and how are you enabling people to do the things that we, uh, we talked about today? So Rebel Gardens kind of all started. I've, I've been interested in e-commerce for years and I was working in that field and I was shopping on Amazon for seeds. Um, because I actually had birthday gift cards, and their selection was terrible. And they, they didn't have anything that was meaningful. It was just companies just pumping out junk seeds about, you know. So I was like, I, I can build this. I, I want to build the alternative that I want to see here. And a big part of my, my job was, was doing Amazon marketing and stuff at the time. So I began doing exactly that, and that's kind of what Rebel Gardens grew out of, was bringing this this spirit of rebellion to the normie world of Amazon. Um, and we've been growing from there. Uh, currently we sell curated seed collections. Um, so it's just targeted to the people who don't want to have to think about it. Right. Here's some basic vegetables you can grow at home. Here's a selection of tomatoes that grow just about anywhere, that sort of stuff. Um, and we're working towards basically empowering people who are in urban and suburban settings who don't want to become homesteaders, right? If you're, if you're a, a doctor and you're doing brain surgery, you should not become a farmer. Like no. that's, that's not a good use of your time. Agree. Uh, but you can grow greens. You can grow herbs. You can start putting your foot in that world. Um, whether it's to be healthier, whether it's just symbolic, because that's just part of what you want to do. And so our job is to empower that. So we're slowly building out um, a selection of tools specifically aimed at people in those scenarios, limited time, limited space. And uh, we're going to, we're going to help build a resilient food system right there in middle America. Awesome, man. And, and the website is of course, so just go to rebelgardens.com. And I tell you folks, get over there because I'm looking at all products and I'm seeing sold out price, sold out, sold out price, price, sold out, price, price, price. So people are buying sold out. There's quite a few sold outs on the website. So um, yeah, COVID uh, did a number in the seed market. So <laughs> it's it's been interesting. We we are getting restocked. So yeah. hopefully when people go there, it should be mostly in stock again. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely going quick, and it's. Good stuff, though. Like I, you, know, you don't have to buy from us. I hope you do, because the more you buy from me, then the more money I have to propagandize to the normies on, on Amazon. But um, just get started wherever you are, right? Go, go borrow seeds from a friend um, and start growing. And there's some cool stuff here. Like you got, he's got a hot pepper collection, guys. It, 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 it runs the Scoville rainbow, starting out with a 500 Scoville unit Anaheim and blowing your brains out of the back of your head with a 
350,000 Scoville unit habanero. Um, <laughs> and a bunch of cool stuff in between, you know, and, and that, you know, that little, uh, packet of seed or that little collection of seeds, it's, uh, eight different peppers is 15 bucks. So it's not real expensive. And I mean, this is the kind of business that we need to be supporting if we mean what we say. Yeah, it's one thing to talk a talk, but it's another thing to walk a walk. So definitely, I recommend people get over your website. And when you do, you know, guys, remember when you hear a, a show like this, um, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, Jason's cool and Rebel Gardens is cool and what have you. And it's all in your brain, but, like, shit's going to happen in your life over the next week, month, days, years. So uh, on the site, he has a, a tab that says Join the Rebellion and, You can subscribe there for updates. So make sure you do that because I can tell it's going to be the kind of thing that new stuff's going to be coming around. And uh, you got a pretty decent social media presence as well, so people should hook up with you there. And, and I appreciate you being with us today, Jason. Well, I appreciate being with you, Jack. This was, this was a great discussion. Well, really enjoyed that discussion with Jason. Uh, we didn't mention it during the interview due to Miss Calm, but... Uh, if you want to pick up some of his seed collections and the other stuff that's available at rebelgardens.com, you can get 25% off for the next couple weeks here with discount code, all capital letters here, TSP25OFF, TSP25OFF, TSP, the number 2, the number 5, and then OFF. And that's in the show notes, so you don't have to remember that. You can go by and check it out. And I would suggest you buy from his main website and, and push Amazon out of the deal. But sometimes people prefer to buy from Amazon. Sometimes it's because they're buying other things and it's just easy to add it to an order or whatever. He does have an Amazon store as well. That link is in the show notes. And that discount code will work both at his main site and on his Amazon store. So you can buy either way there. And send this guy some business. He's doing good stuff. And, I mean, there's I guarantee you, if you grow any of your own food or you want to get started, there's something there you can uh, pick out to start working with. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and remind you guys. If you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help us out when you're doing your online shopping, like on Amazon, you can do your online shopping through a little website of mine called tspaz.com. And if you go to tspaz.com, you will uh, help us out no matter what you buy. And today's item today is a new one I have never brought around for you guys before. It's a little simple item, but it, there, there was a lot of research in finding it. It's a 1.5-quart mini slow cooker, a.k.a. a crock pot. It's made by a company called Corant, C-O-U-R-A-N-T. And you'd think, since there's a lot of great slow cookers out there, getting a mini slow cooker that's a good one would be easy. You, you would be wrong. It, they, they don't really, I don't think most companies put the thought and the quality control into the smaller ones. I think because most of them just figure it's for keeping dip warm or, beanie weenies or something like queso or something and even with that either they don't get hot enough or they get so hot they scorch everything and burn it all to the sides and make a mess out of it um the current was one of a couple just a very small handful i was able to find that like the bigger crock pots have three settings keep warm low and high and uh then of those where Warm is actually warm. Low is actually kind of a thing that after a long enough time will bring you to a bare simmer. And a bare simmer is like a little bubble here and a little bubble there and a little bubble here in different spots. Every couple seconds you get a couple, three bubbles. And, so, and that's it. And high would bring you to a full simmer and not to an obliterating, destroying the food boil. 
and they would actually work. And, and this one is the best one I found. It's about 26 bucks, and yes, you can get small ones for less money. Um, I recommend in the PS of today's write-up. Today's write-up is one of the longest write-ups I've ever done because this thing does so much for me in my life. The, I mean, you got to check out some of the things I've been doing with it as far as making the best of leftovers. And this is why a small crockpot, because a big crockpot is too freaking big, even a moderate-sized one, to do the kinds of thing I'm talking about. What I decided is I wanted a way to take my leftovers after dinner, throw them together in some way, and in the morning turn on a little crockpot and end up with great food. And you are not going to do that with a three- or four-quart crockpot. It just doesn't work. You're too shallow in it. You're going to overcook everything. It's not efficient. And if you make a giant pile of food, then you, you know, that's not really like a one-off for lunch. I gave a whole shit ton of ideas that I've been doing with these. I'm going to give you one or two today on air, and you can read the rest if you want to. Um, here's what I had for lunch right before recording today's show. And my plan was to eat half of this before my interview and save the other half of it for after my interview. It did not happen. I delayed my interview five minutes to go fill the other bowl up so I could eat it. It was one of the best things I've ever made, and it was from leftovers. So last night I looked in my fridge. I found about a third of a ring of andouille sausage that had been left over. I'm like, I'd like to do some gumbo with that, but I can't do roe or flour, arua flour or anything like that because of keto. Had no okra, but what do I have? What can I? And this is the thing. I love this thing because you can just figure out what you have. So I look at the freezer. We got some frozen shrimp. I don't want them overcooked. Plan form. I cut the shrimp up, coated them with Chef Paul's Redfish Magic seasoning, and let them firm up for the next day. So jumbo shrimp, I cut them into about three pieces each. I think I pulled out eight shrimp and let them sit in the freezer or the refrigerator overnight with that seasoning on them because the salt in it pulls out the moisture and the seasoning goes inside. And so that sits in the fridge and into the produce bin. And I'm like, ah, I got oyster mushrooms. And I cut them up, put them in the crock. What, oyster mushroom? Mushrooms don't go in gumbo? You're not the boss of me. Roll with it, guys. You know how I am with food. I, honestly, being keto, I need something for body other than a starch. And oysters are really a very mild mushroom in something like this. So they were fantastic. I cut them up. I cut the sausage up, diced up a rib of celery, a third of an onion, and an Anaheim chili pepper. See what you got going on there? Holy Trinity, except instead of sweet peppers, was Anaheim, celery, onions, and uh, peppers. And then uh, two cloves of garlic, a handful of dehydrated tomatoes, put a little bit of redfish seasoning and some salt and pepper in, and I covered it with stock. I made the stock with better-than-bullion fish base. And then I just put that in the refrigerator. In the morning when I got up and made my coffee, I took the little stone crock out of the refrigerator, dropped it into the cooker that sits right on my coffee bar, turned it on high. Let it run for about an hour and a half, checked on it. It was simmering. Put it down to warm. Left it until lunchtime. About a half hour before lunchtime, threw the shrimp in it, stirred them in, let them just cook through. It was, honest to God, one of the best things I've ever eaten. I made it with leftovers. Leftovers and whatever I could grab out of the pantry, and I didn't use um, a real recipe. Here's another one. This came out like carnitas. I took some pork roast. I was down about a half pound less of it. I cut it up, threw it in the crock, added a handful of dehydrated jalapenos without the seeds. That's how I do my ones I grow in the garden. I cut four sides off them. I hold them straight up and down and cut them long ways like that. That way they're not blowing your brains out with heat. 
uh, dehydrate them that way. I did a tablespoon of chili powder, a few cloves of garlic, some diced celery, a handful of dehydrated tomatoes and cumin, salt and pepper. Um, we had some cilantro that had seen better days. And basically, the whole top had been cut off it. So I took the, the stems and I chopped the stems up really, really fine, threw those in there, um, and covered it with some chicken st bone stock. Turned it on, cooked it until it was done, and it was, again, it was like a smoked pork roast leftovers. Oh, my God, it was amazing. And there's like five other things in this write-up that I gave, like the breakdown. Not recipes, but just kind of what I told you there. How about Jamaican jerk chicken soup? You got leftover chicken, the Walker's Wood traditional Jamaican jerk season. I tell you how to do that in the write-up. This is a good one. You could do this with your own cooker if you have it. You could do it with larger recipes, whatever. This is a good one to read just to see what you can get out of it. I talk about making beef stew and using shiitake mushrooms in that if you're keto. I also tell you what to do if you're not keto. I, this is a great write-up. And, again, this one is it's the best one I could find. $26, bucks, and you wait about three or four days to get it because they're a third-party seller because that's how they sell. It is one of the best-built little devices I've ever seen. If you want a cheap one, I have one for $15 bucks in the write-up, too, but I'd get, I'd get the better one. Um, and then I also even included for you in this write-up, like a tip for you guys in offices and stuff, don't be standing in line waiting to microwave stuff in Tupperware. Take the cooker in, plug it in at your desk, don't turn it on until you need it, and just take the little stone crock piece back and forth. See, it's small enough. It's only one and a half quarts. It fits in a dishwasher. It fits in a refrigerator, etc. Take that back and forth home. Make your stuff. What I do usually at the end of dinner, I go ahead and make my lunch for the next day with the leftovers and throw it in the crock pot. And then when you go into work, just drop it in at your desk and turn it on and like keep an eye on it. Like I, I actually am not a big fan of the whole turn the crock pot on and come back ten hours later. That's not my thing. My, you know, you look at it, it's, it's kind of done now. It's gotten up to temperature. Turn it down super low. Or even turn it off and then just turn it back on about 15, 20 minutes before you're going to eat. It'll bring temperature back up. The reason I put it on high when I first put it out is because it's coming out of the refrigerator. So it's cold. I want to get it up a temp. It is energy efficient. I bring the, I give you the breakdown using a kilowatt meter. I, I, this is like one of the most intensive write-ups I've ever done. It's for a $26 crock pot. But it's because it's that damn good and it's done that much. It paid for itself, I'd say inside of two weeks, just with the meals that it made from food that would have otherwise probably not been used. And so, especially you guys in offices and stuff, while people are eating junk food and nuclear reactoring stuff in Tupperware, you can be eating gourmet leftovers. Check this thing out. And remember, no matter what you buy, you can always help us out by starting at tspaz.com when you do so. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day. Like I said, I called an audible this week and decided to do an Aaron Lewis tribute week. I think we've done an Aaron Lewis week before, but these are all songs I've picked. And they're all a little bit lesser known, except for the one I'm going to end the week with, which is still not that well known because it's brand new, but it's topping the charts right now. This one's definitely lesser known. I think it's from his third album, or second album after he moved into the world of country and left the world of uh, kind of grunge metal with Stained behind, mostly. Anyway, he still still actually performs with Stained, from my understanding. Uh, but this song's called Mama. And it starts out with, you know, advice his mother gave him and advice his father gave him. And it kind of feels initially like this is a song about, you know, following the advice that you're given. And to a degree that it is. 
But what I love about this song, and I think what's mainly missed about this song, this song's really about coming to terms with who you really are, and not just coming to terms with who you are, learning how to love that, learning how to be that, learning how not just to accept that, but to embrace who and what you really are, and realizing it's probably okay. As long as you're not out there hurting other people, There's probably nothing wrong with the way you're living. It's a kind of crazy idea. It sounds very, uh, well, I don't know, anarcho to me. And this song is actually quite anarcho to me. Listen, really listen to it and see if you agree. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. She was sorry For all the time She couldn't save my soul I should have listened to her words A little more Before I packed up And I walked right out that door told me son you better love the best you can and don't look back at me sorry these moments won't be coming round again but I feel Like I could conquer the whole world When I look up and see those three little Damn all the stories I can't
too Cause I'm so lost I can't find my way All my pieces glued together For the world to see Mistakes I've made